It is good to be with you guys, and uh, we've been kind of walking through Paul's defense of the doctrine of resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. The whole chapter is about resurrection. It's about the resurrection of Christ. It's about the resurrection of believers. And he's been defending the doctrine in that chapter because the Corinthians had a twisted view of res resurrection. They did believe Christ rose, but they were questioning their own resurrection and weren't certain about that and were now rejecting the idea of them being resurrected. Last Sunday, we wrapped up the section where Paul used baptism and his own personal brushes with death to illustrate how utter, utterly meaningless baptism and, and struggling for Christ and facing danger for Christ, how worthless those things would be if there were no resurrection. Baptism would be, you know, nothing more than an empty sacrament since it models and foreshadows resurrection. And likewise, suffering and even dying for Christ would be a complete waste of a life if the dead are not raised. And so he illustrates that in the middle portion of chapter 15. We also learned last week that um, the apparent decline in orthodoxy, right beliefs, and orthopraxy, right living, in the Corinthian church was the result of the Corinthians keeping bad company, primarily with the ever-deceptive false-teaching local philosophers. You had philosophers that would teach down in the marketplace and they had their own ideas and their ideas conflicted with Christian ideas. They had their own doctrines, those conflicted. And you have church members that are going and presenting themselves to them and listening and now they're bringing these false doctrines back to the church. And so this is kind of one of the main reasons why this church was falling theologically. Paul exhorts them to wake up from, from their drunken spiritual stupor, to stop sinning against the word, because to play around with the doctrine of resurrection or to reject it altogether is, is just to sin against the word, the revealed word of God. And he also exhorted them to, to recognize that the local philosophers had no knowledge of God. That's his phrase. They have no knowledge of God. And you keep putting yourselves before people in their teaching that have no knowledge of God. What are you doing? And so this is how he calls them out in the previous section. In the next section, Paul continues his defensive resurrection uh, by refuting the Gnostic doctrine of incompatibility. Uh, what Gnosticism is, is it's this idea of a higher spiritual knowledge. And Gnosticism was, it, it basically has its roots in Platonism or Platonic philosophy, and it rejects afterlife and these sorts of things. It rejects all physical matter, which is weird because we are physical matter. It puts all this emphasis on spiritual matter, but it has this doctrine called in incompatibility, and it doesn't believe that this flesh is any good or useful at all, and it's incompatible with the things of God or with spiritual things. This is another kind of false idea that had crept into this church. And of course, if you believe in the doctrine, the Gnostic doctrine of incompatibility, incompatibility, then you reject the idea of resurrection because resurrection is literally the reanimating or bringing back to life or reconstructing a human body. It is a life coming back. And the Gnostics say the bodies are worthless. We don't need them. We're just spirits and that's what we need. And so he's now gonna deal with that doctrine, that false doctrine of incompatibility. 
And this is where the Corinthians were. We see no need for resurrection because the, the purest and truest sense of ourselves is our spiritual person. And that's what matters. We don't need these physical bodies. And so, and of course, you reject resurrection. So he's going to deal with that now. That's his, his whole argument seems to be aimed at that kind of, that kind of thinking here. He corrects those who deny the possibility of resurrection because they assume that our natural earthly bodies are incompatible with any sort of heavenly spiritual existence. So that's what he deals with. And his teaching now in this section is kind of a Q&A format. He asks a couple questions and then the rhetorical questions and then he, he gives answers to them. He gives examples and explanations that answer these two questions. So it's really a Q&A. begins with questions and ends with answers. This will be a four-point sermon, and it does have several sub-points under some of these main points. And so it's going to take us a minute to get through this text, and I'm, I'm hoping just to stay focused and not go down any Philistine, because I'm Phil, any Philistine rabbit holes, and hopefully just to stay on the text. Let's uh, take our Bibles and turn over to 1 Corinthians. We're taking off a big chunk today. Uh, chapter 15, verses 35 to 49. That's big for me. That's big for us on a Sunday. So we're going to try to get through all of it. As usual, I'd like to pray for God's help before we get to work. Father, help us once again just to hear your word, to believe your word, to apply and do your word. Um, Lord, we know that you're going to defend um, the reality and doctrine of resurrection once more through Paul in this text. It's so imperative and important that we understand the distinctions between flesh and spirit, but that we don't see them as being incompatible. Maybe this is illustrated best in the incarnation, where you have Christ as, 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 as eternal God, a spirit who condescends and comes down and becomes a human being. There's the merging of the two. Um, we see it perfectly in the incarnation. And so we, we need to realize that now. And I think some of us are under this Gnostic idea that, you know, these two things aren't compatible or that the spiritual aspect of who we are or who we could be is unimportant, that the soul is unimportant. And yet scripture says, you know, the, the, the man who gains the world and forfeits his soul, what good is that? And so help us to see the value of spiritual things this morning and help us to see how how you work through both and that your redemption and your salvation includes both. It's not just the saving of the soul. It's the saving of the whole man, the whole woman. And so help us to see these things this morning in your word. Help us to grasp resurrection better and to, to put away all the errors and, and weird thoughts and the carnal thoughts and things. And so uh, help us this morning just as you sought to help those Corinthians a couple thousand years ago. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. And we can pick up where we left off and look at our first main point. As I said, number one, Paul begins with rhetorical questions concerning resurrection bodies. Like what the body, the bodies of those who will be resurrected in the future, what they will be like. And he does this in verses 35 to 36a. That's where we start. He says this, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? And he says, and with what kind of body do they come? And then in 36a, he says, what, you foolish person, exclamation point. 
So stop there. This is how he loads the shotgun both barrels and fires both at the same time now, right at the Corinthians. He's already laid out his defense of, of, of resurrection in so many different ways, and now he's doing it again in a different way. And he's pretending as if someone that he's writing to is going to be sitting there as they read this letter after it arrives. They're going to be sitting there going, okay, fine, you're arguing all this information and data and you call them facts for resurrection. Well, then how, what are the bodies like and how will they come about and these sorts of things. And that's exactly what Paul pretends is happening. He anticipates that this is going to happen. Some in this church are going to find his teachings on resurrection maybe just fanciful and even potentially outrageous. Like, oh, that just sounds too good to be true that you're going to take these bodies that are falling apart and they're going to be buried in tombs and rotting and there's going to be worms and it's putrid and it's disgusting and we're going to stinketh like Lazarus one day and, and you're going to take these things and reanimate them and bring them back to life and they're going to be new and glorified. I mean, that just sounds wonderful, but I'm not sure I believe it. And how would that even take place? And what will we be like? This is the kind of thinking he anticipates in the churches. They're going to read this letter. It's too good to be true. In an effort to set these potential, they're kind of imaginary, but they're the Corinthians, so they probably did think this when they read the letter. But to set these potential objectors straight, he just asks a pair of rhetorical questions. And like as if they're asking them that he's going to provide answers for. So it's the first part of the Q&A. It's the Q. Now, his questions here may have been serious. Like, what kind of bodies will we have and what will they be like? I mean, he, he could be proposing that they will ask these questions in a serious manner. Like, they, okay, we're interested in what you're saying. We'd like to know what they're going to be like, right? Or... He could be asking them in a mocking way, like they're mocking him with their potential questions, their imaginary questions. I think that the, the beginning of verse 36 and 36a, that's a pretty sharp rebuke, right? You see it there. So I think that he's asking it with a mocking tone. Like when the Corinthians read all this data on resurrection, they're going to turn around and say, fine and dandy, what are, the what are our bodies going to be like then? Why don't you explain that? Right? His rebuke kind of indicates that he's asking it in a mocking way, meaning that they would be mocking him. In any case, the two rhetorical questions really are the basis for Paul's entire argument in the rest of the section, really all the way through the end of the chapter. So it's an important section. The questions are important. He will spend his time answering those two questions. How then are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? Those are the rhetorical questions, whether they're asking a mocking way or a serious way. He's going to answer them. But it seems like he was doing it in a mocking way because of the 36A. So that's the first point. Now let's move to the second point. Some of these move faster than others. Number two we're going to look at examples that illustrate what resurrection is like. This is the very next thing he does. He asks questions, and now he's going to insert examples to illustrate what these bodies will be like, or what, at this point, what resurrection is like in general. And this takes place in 36b to 42a. 
The first thing Paul does here after he asks his rhetorical questions is he begins to describe what resurrection is like. And he gives three examples of what it is like. He gives an example from agriculture, an example from anatomy, and an example from astronomy. Three A's, okay? I came up with that. Thank you. That was not MacArthur. And these are our subpoints now. There's going to be three subpoints under the examples that illustrate what resurrection is like. He gives three examples. They are our subpoints. Let's look at the first one. A, an example from agriculture. We see this in 36B to 38. Let me read it. Listen to what he says. You want to know what the bodies will be like? How they'll come? Listen. This is what he says. What you sow, that means to put into the ground, does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. He says in 38, but God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. Obviously, you can tell he's speaking from an agricultural perspective. He's talking about seeds and sowing seeds and planting and what happens to the seed and germination and what comes from the seed, the plant and these sorts of things. This is the example that he gives and he's likening it to resurrection. Now if you think about it, it's pretty clever because you have these bodies, they die, they go into a tomb, what comes out? A beautiful plant. So the parallels are spectacular. This is wonderful what he's doing. When a seed is planted into the ground, that's when it actually dies. When you're holding a seed in your hand, it just looks like nothing, but it's actually alive. It doesn't die until you put it under the ground and bury it and cut off its air supply. That's when the seed dies, okay? Decomposing. Um, when a seed is planted in the ground, it dies, actually decomposing as a seed. Now, it has to cease to exist in its original form as a seed before it can become its final form, which is a plant. Okay, that's, that's seeds 101. All of us should understand this. I don't know if they teach these things in school any longer. They certainly should. So, so... This is the example, this is the illustration. Applying the same figure, Jesus himself said, truly, truly, I say to you, anytime we see the truly, truly, Rachel and I were talking about this earlier, it means serious, serious. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit, John 12, uh, John 12, 24. So Jesus is using the exact same agricultural example that Paul is using. He was using it in a different teaching. You're thinking of Christ himself, because I think he's referring to himself. Before Christ could bear the fruit of salvation for us, he had to die. Likewise, before we can participate in the fruit of his resurrection or bear fruit in his service, we too must die. So those are the parallels that Paul was seeking to make through the example. Resurrection is like seeds and agriculture. You have a person that goes into the ground as dead and they become something else, something spectacular. The fullness of who they are, just as the seed becomes the fullness of a plant. 
The seed portion of a plant is not the finality of it. It's only the beginning, and it has to suffer death before it can move to the next juncture or to its full potential. The exact same thing is true of us Christians. That's what Paul is arguing here. In, in the growing of crops and in the resurrection of bodies, there is a difference between the original and final forms. The seed loses its identity as a seed and becomes more and more like a mature plant. But the seed itself, that which you sow, whether it is, as Paul says, weed or something else, it looks nothing like the mature plant, the body that it is to become. It's only after ceasing to be a seed that it becomes the mature plant that a farmer harvests. You think about Jesus, in a sense, how this applies to Jesus. He was a, a, a person who moved around and walked around. He could be only in one place at a time. And, you know, he traveled all throughout Israel preaching the gospel and stuff. And, and then when he dies on the cross and is buried, he's like a seed in the tomb. And then he rises in a glorified state. And now he can be in more than one place at a time. Or he could, uh, maybe not so much as that, but he could travel through things and appear in one place or appear in another without having to walk the distance. There were differences between his regular humanity and his glorified humanity. When he went into the tomb, he went in as a, the God-man. When he came out, as he, he came out as the glorified God-man. Were there distinctions and differences between burial and resurrection? He was a particular type of person or he was a particular way as a human being and then as a glorified human being after resurrection he was vastly different so that's what he's arguing here for we're just like this seed in a sense christ himself is is the model for this he's the prototype of this agricultural example what came out of the grave when we're thinking of christ was different from what was placed in the grave and, and as MacArthur says, um, Jesus was no longer limited by time, space, and material substance. He says this resurrection changed Jesus' body in marvelous and radical ways. And at his return, all resurrection bodies will be changed marvelously and radically. So a great commentary on this. In spite of the differences, now think about this. In spite of the differences, like if you're thinking of Jesus because I think he's the prototype and the easiest way to think of this because he's the only one who's ever been resurrected. He was like this in his regular life and then glorified in his afterlife, so to speak, his resurrection life. There are distinctions, right? There are massive radical differences between Christ before death and Christ after death as in human terms, right? Radical differences, marvelous differences. But he's the same person. There's continuity between the two, right? In fact, what did Jesus have after his resurrection? He still had wounds. He tells Thomas, place your finger here. He was, in a sense, unrecognizable at times, because I think he had the ability to mask his appearance, but he was also highly recognizable at times. People recognized him, knew the sound of his voice, and then there were distinctions. And so... Part of the Gnostic thinking is that we would lose the entirety of who we are somehow. And we don't lose the entirety of who we are in resurrection. I don't go in the grave as Phil and come out as Mark. I, I'm still Phil. 
And that scares me because I really don't want to be, <laughs> better be way different, dude. Trust me, you don't want the same guy in your kingdom, right? I mean, but there is continuity between the old and the new. And part of the Gnostic thinking is, is that that can't be because the old is, is useless and we need to be completely changed. Well, you will be completely changed. But it's still Keith. You know, you, you know your name is unique to you. You will still bear your name. You know, resurrection isn't the complete wiping out of, of any residue or I would say negative residue, absolutely, but it's not the complete undoing of who you were. It is the best you that you could ever be. That's the glory of resurrection. So the Gnostic idea is, okay, that we would, how can we have a body come back? And I don't see the continuity. There is continuity. There is continuity here. You know, Jesus went into the grave and was like this, and he came out and he was like that, but he was still Christ and still had the wounds, was still recognizable if he wanted to be. The same Christ, he's no different. Uh, that's a point that he's kind of laboring here. Uh, the seed changes radically, but it continues to, it continues as the same life form. In fact, you can't even have the plant without the seed. Right? You, you can't, there's no plants without seeds. You have to have the seed to get a plant. What Paul is illustrating here is that you have to be a physical person before you can be a resurrected person. That you can't be a resurrected person in the future without firstly being a person. He argues this in a bit here where he talks about the spiritual doesn't come first, the physical does. Yet every angle that he's coming at here in the text is an argument against the Gnostic idea of that there's no continuity between them. They, they're not compatible. And they're completely compatible. In fact, you can't have one without the other, what he's arguing. There's differences, but there's continuity between the old and the new. The seed changes, but it's still the same life form. And think of it like this. You know, you put a, a wheat seed into the ground. It doesn't come out as a barley seed. It doesn't completely change what it is. It's a wheat plant that comes from a wheat seed. It's, it's not... It's not Flower, it's, it's not, well, I guess it could be if you grind it, but it's not, it's not a sunflower. It's not some other kind of plant. There's no transfer over. There is distinctions, but there is still continuity. That's what he's saying here. He says that God has given each type of seed its own body. And, and it's the, the identity here, just kind of, of the seed continues into a grown plant. And it is absolutely similar with our resurrected bodies as believers. There is continuity between who we are now and what we will be. You will be a perfected you, not a completely, thoroughly different you. That's what's so wonderful about this. Let me ask you this. And, and maybe you can answer, and I don't care if it doesn't translate well on YouTube. We don't do this for YouTube. We do this for people that are homesick and all that. But is it a little less scary for you to know that you will come out of this in Christ as the best you rather than something that you can't be familiar with, like a completely different you where there's no connection to who you were? Part of the fear of death is losing the sense of who we are and losing our existence. Death doesn't end the existence of the Christian. 
it's almost as if it puts it on hold for a moment while you're in glory with the Lord until we can get to this next step where the seed becomes the plant and we become the resurrected us. To me, it's much more comforting to know that Phil will still be there. It's just the best possible Phil. The idea of me being something else that I'm not familiar with, and even if you just say, well, it'll be really good. Okay, that's a bit comforting, but to lose the full sense of who I am is a little intimidating, right? I don't know if Bruce will change much. He's pretty darn good at, you know, it now. Maybe he'll just, I think they're going to have to knock you down a little bit in the resurrection. <laughs> He's a good godly man, and he would tell me you're an idiot because it's only Christ in me, right? But you, you don't, you, you, Caroline, you, let's not use Caroline. It's her birthday for crying out loud. <laughs> Caroline's like, hey, don't put me in the grave already. For that. Cameron, I'll pick on Cameron. Cameron's like, it's always me. It's always me. And it always will be you. But wouldn't you prefer it to be the best you to come through that rather than I don't know what I'll be? That's what resurrection is. You have to have the continuity. There has to be Cameron 1 before there's Cameron 2. Cameron 1, Cameron 2, right? Yeah. Dave needs this badly. I mean, Dave's like, will my kidneys be restored? Yes, Dave, you will never be on another list waiting for kidneys. And if our blood match is good, I'll give you one of mine. Okay, just know that I peppered it pretty heavily with vodka for about 25 years may not be the best option for you. I don't do that anymore, but I did in my early days. I punished my body. Well, I kind of still am a little bit, but, but you're going to be the best version of you. And what does that mean? Your best life now? Well, yeah, in a way. That's not what we're aiming for now, but that's what we will be. I mean, you're going to be, Keith is going to be the Keith who is perfectly fashioned for worship without any distractions, whether they be in his head or on the outside. That's what he'll be in his resurrected form. Isn't that wonderful, Keith? I, I wish I were that now, right? So th this is good. There's continuity. Uh, right now, we are, Paul is arguing that you, you say there's no resurrection. Well, let me tell you how it is. It's like agriculture, and you're like a seed, and you'll go down, and you'll get buried, but you're going to rise as something vastly different. You're going to go in a certain way, and you're going to come out a certain way, and what, what comes out is going to be spectacular and perfected. And, and what God intends, and, and, and there won't be any maladies or any of these other things. So this is his first example from agriculture. Let's move to the second one, B. Next, he gives an example from anatomy. We see this in 39 to 40. He says, for not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for animals, or one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. Stop there. What is he doing here? He's using various anatomies in creation, right? You've got the human anatomy. You've got animal anatomy. You've, you've got bird anatomy and fish anatomy. You've got the anatomy of heavenly bodies, which would be planets and stars and solar systems and these sorts of things. Um, you could even maybe think of it in terms of angelic 
anatomy, um, God anatomy, where God is spirit doesn't have anatomy, Christ does, but so he's using the different examples of anatomy, whether they be from the heavens above or the earth below, whether they be human or from the animal kingdom. Um, this is what he's doing. There are human bodies, there's animal bodies, there's bird bodies, there's fish bodies. I know Rachel wishes there weren't any bird bodies. She's not a bird person. Um, there's heavenly bodies, earthly bodies, and they, they all, his point is, they all are created by God and they all possess their own glory in a sense, right? Every one of them is made by a glorious God and possesses its own innate or unique glory. The human body is glorious in its own regard. Animal bodies are glorious in their own regard. That's what he's speaking of here. The heavenly bodies have a kind of glory and earthly bodies have a kind of glory. That's exactly what he's saying. Um, when you look out among or look at creation and analyze creation and look at animals and all these things, you realize all the different glorious anatomies that exist in these sorts of things. And with such diversity and creativity and varying glory, I think we would say that some animal anatomies are, appear to be more glorious than others or whatever, and they're not competing glories. But when we analyze creation, we see all the different distinctions and all the, uh, the, the beauty of diversity, whether it be when we look at the stars at night and the stars are all flickering, but differently. And when we look at all of it, we're kind of blown away by the magnificence of God's creation in his creativity and diversity in creating so many various bodies in a sense, right? Or anatomies. What, what is Paul's point through the example of anatomy? If God, uh, remember the Gnostic idea is that we're talking about impossibilities, incompatibilities. You can't have spiritual and physical merging together. You can't have physical leading to spiritual or vice versa. Physical is just bad. That's the Gnostic idea. Why is Paul drawing examples from anatomies? What he's saying is that in God's infinite wisdom and creativity, if the God who has created all things can create all these various anatomies and all of this beauty and all of these varying glories in how these things are made, then he can certainly raise people from the dead and give them glorious bodies. That's his logic. That's why he brings in this existence. You're saying that this is something that God cannot do. Okay, obviously you haven't taken a trip to Yosemite lately. Obviously you haven't been to the zoo lately and looked at some of these funky looking creatures that God has created. The platypus, what on earth were you thinking? I think I'm gonna mix a beaver with a duck. If God can create all of this in all of these varying anatomies, and he can even create seeds that are meant to die to produce something else, then I think it's safe to say that he's more than capable, right? To take a human form that was living and that has died. I think he's more than capable to bring it back to life and have it still be the same but glorious, just as the stars in heaven are glorious, just as the heavenly bodies are glorious. That's what Paul is arguing here, okay? God has the ability to create bodies that are different and yet continuous. Now let's move to our third sub-point here. 
C, that was the example of anatomy. Now we have C, an example from astronomy. All right? Uh, verses 41 to 42a. <coughs> he says, There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. Paul describes various heavenly bodies. Remember, in the previous verse, he mentioned heavenly bodies. And now he's describing them. You got the sun and the moon and you got the stars. So he's not really talking about angels or in that third heaven anatomy. He's talking about the anatomy of space, and that's stars and planets and, and all of that good stuff. He's describing heavenly bodies and their glory. There is the sun with its glory, and the moon with its glory, and the stars with their own glory. And they're all glorious, but they all differ from one another in glory. And then he ties this to resurrection. He says, this is how it is with the resurrection of the dead. What does he mean? Our resurrection bodies will differ from our earthly bodies just as radically as uh, heavenly bodies differ from earthly bodies, and yet they will be uniquely ours and familiar. They will be glorified to the uttermost, but the essence of who we were will remain. I'm still Phil. I'm just the best possible. I'm the Phil that is most like Christ now is what I will be in resurrection. That's what Bruce will be. He will be most Christ-like. Is salvation going to heaven in golden streets and all these things? Sure, the Bible describes it as such. But the real thrust of heaven is to make a people like their master and king, Jesus Christ, the most perfect human being to ever walk the face of the earth, perfect in compassion, perfect in justice, perfect in all things. So the real joy and excitement of salvation is for me to not cease to be Phil, but it is for me to be Phil who is absolutely like his Savior, minus the deity. To be like him, to even be glorified like him in a sense. This, this, is, this is the hope that we have in resurrection because that's what it produces. This is what he's talking about here. But he, he's saying that all these you know, all these planetary bodies and anatomies, all these things in space, they all have their own glory, but there is a continuity. The star is still a star. And so he's, this is what he's arguing. We, and, and would we not admit and, and say to a sense with the vast heavenlies that are above us when we look out at them and we feel like peons and we feel like the earth is nothing next to what we're compared, what we're looking into? We will be so much, that's the difference between the who we were and the who we will be, that we will take on a glory that is so striking and beautiful. This is what he's arguing. This is his point. This is his point, okay? So he uses, and back then I think it wouldn't have been called astronomy. It probably would have been called, um, what's the other one? Astrology. Astrology didn't start off with Cleo offering you a, you know, a forecast of your future for $29.99. Astrology started out, it was the study of stars. The, the wise men who went to, you know, followed the star to go see Jesus were astrologers, but they weren't, call me now! They were real astrologers, and that was early astronomy. So he's using an example from that to illustrate just how glorious we will be. 
And I love it. I love what he's doing here. So those are the three examples under that heading. Let's move to our third main point. Distinctions between natural and resurrection bodies. We see this in verses 42b to 44. What Paul does is he, in this next small section, he highlights four distinctions between our natural bodies and the resurrection bodies that are to come. And this is what makes them different from one another. One is like this, the other is like that. This is the exact argumentation that he uses here. Now we can move to, and like I said, there's four distinctions here. We can move to our fourth distinction, which really would be our fourth sub-point. These are the things we'll look at under this heading. D, here's the distinctions between the body now and the body to come. First thing he says is one is perishable, the other is imperishable. He says this in verse 42b. This is exactly what he says. I should have just put the verse there instead of my own statement. But he says this, what is sown? That's the body that's to go into the tomb. That's the body we have now. What is sown is perishable. Who would argue against that? Are these bodies not perishing? Are they not perishable? I've had a cold last week. I was reminded of just how perishable this body is. And being a man with a cold is really bad. Any wife in here knows that, you know, oh, my husband is such a tough guy 24-7. As soon as he gets a cold, he's, I need to get the pampers out. <laughs> Big baby, right? I mean, we're reminded daily of how perishable we are. These bodies of ours are failing and will ultimately fail at some point and become that seed. What is sown is perishable. But what is raised is imperishable. Those are his exact words. Well, they're the English translation of his words in Greek. One of the most obvious characteristics of all natural life, including human life, is that it is perishable. You know, everything today with Pfizer and everyone else is bent toward trying to preserve this stuff, trying to preserve these, trying to fight off time and disease and all these things. You know, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing. It's a good thing. We all want to live as long as we can, I guess. But it's very obvious. Deterioration, eventual death, we know these things are coming. Even a, a healthy infant, dare I say, is in the process of aging and deterioration. You say, well, he's growing up. Yeah, closer and closer to the grave. Growing up and maturing is part of the dying process. You think it's part of the living process. It is in a way, but it's also part of the dying process. It's everywhere. You cannot escape this. All the Americans are really good at trying to escape their mortality. It's everywhere. Even a healthy infant is dealing with this. One of the tragic consequences of the fall was that men's bodies from that time on were irreversibly mortal, subject to death. Without exception, every human being is sown, that is, born with a perishable body. And in, in everything in our culture now is geared toward reversing that or at least trying to stymie and slow it down. And they're always talking about trying to slow down the aging process or whatever. What is the aging process? You getting closer and closer to your perishable end, the seed going into the ground. But the resurrection body of the believer, it's going to be raised with an imperishable body. This is the better fill, <laughs> the fill that, that doesn't die any longer, the fill that doesn't end up with cancer, the fill that doesn't, uh, that's the idea. You, you are perishable, but you won't stay perishable forever. In resurrection, you're given 
a body back, a physical body back. You will physically dwell in the kingdom of Christ, but you'll have an imperishable body. Now that's excitement because I don't want to completely lose who I am. I just want to lose all the things about me that are terrible. But in one of them is a perishable body. You know, I fall down our stairs at the house almost daily. We live in a two-story now for the first time in years, and I can't even seem to navigate. I'm like Biden. That was a terrible, cruel thing to say, but it's true. I, I, I'm falling down the stairs. I heard Rachel this morning. She goes, my first time, she, she only hit two steps. The difference between her and me, gravity takes me all the way to the bottom in half a second. She manages to grab something and hang on. Ryan's falling down the stairs a couple times. These bodies just can't even navigate stairs anymore. It's horrible. And let me tell you, they're solid oak stairs. So they feel good. Yeah. It's unbelievable. One of the consequences is that we've all ended up with these mortal bodies. And, but that resurrection body is completely different. At, at resurrection, at the resurrection of Christ, when he returns, death will be swallowed up in victory. 1 Corinthians 15, 54. We'll get to that text. And our new bodies will know no sickness, no decay, no deterioration, no death, nothing at all like that. We're raised imperishable. Now we're perishable, but we will be raised imperishable. That's the joy. That's the excitement. I love what 1 Peter 1, 3 to 4 says. Be encouraged. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ! Exclamation point. According to his great mercy, it's all by mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept for you in heaven. Is the inheritance a mansion of my own, the house that I can finally afford? And, you know, and it, 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 you know it, 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 it's like the Jetsons' house. Everything is done for me. And, you know, there's little robots that go around cleaning everything, and it's such a idealistic, perfect place with a white picket fence. No, that's not what we're talking about. What is my inheritance? It's a new body, man. An imperishable body. That is being kept for me for the day of the Lord. That is the greatest thing that I think we could ever receive. Firstly, to be most like Christ. Secondly, to not be hindered by anything that we're hindered by now. So that's the imperishable inheritance of the saints. It is new bodies in a new Jerusalem, in a new heavens and new earth. Doesn't that sound good? That's what we have coming. That's what Peter is talking about. That's what Paul is talking about. What is sown is perishable. You are perishable. But if you're in Christ, you will be raised imperishable. That's what he's promising. So that's the first one. D, well, actually, really, that's the fourth one. Now let's move to the fifth subpoint. E. Here's another difference between the old and the new. One is dishonorable, and yet the other is glorious. 43A. He says, it is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. Okay. At the fall, man's potential for pleasing and serving God is radically reduced. Actually, it was obliterated until God restored it through the sacrificial system and through the promise, covenant promise of a redeemer who would come and smash the devil and all these sorts of things. But 
uh, we have to admit that at the fall, I mean, Adam and Eve, I think, served God very organically and very naturally and very well prior to the fall. And after that, their thinking processes and their, their ability to understand and comprehend things, their ability to be embraced by the love of God or to receive the love of God or to believe the love of God, all these things were hindered and they could not see him properly. They could not serve him properly any longer after that. And this is true of all their progeny, which is all people. The creature that was made perfect and in the very image of his creator was made to manifest the creator in, in all that he did. That was the intent for Adam and Eve and all their progeny. But through sin, that which was created to honor God became characterized instead by dishonor. Dishonor for self, dishonor for others, and dishonor for their creator. We dishonor God by our inability to take advantage fully of what he has given us in his creation. We dishonor God by misusing and abusing the bodies through which he desires us to honor and serve him. We, we are in a state of dishonor. All right? It's not, it's, it's not our, our natural bent to want to honor God. It's our natural bent to want to honor ourselves, which is 99.9% .9 of the time dishonoring to God. In fact, we treat ourselves like we're the gods. So we're in a state of decay, as he makes in the first point, and now we, he's talking about how we're in a state of dishonor, and that's because of the fall and because of our own sin and our own poor, terrible choices. But these dishonorable bodies, they will be raised in glory, is his point. They will be perfected for pleasing and praising and enjoying the Creator who made them and the Redeemer who restored them for all eternity, mind you. So the dishonor that we experience and even practice sadly now, and we know it's wrong and don't want to, It'll be changed to pure glory, and there won't be any struggle with that whatsoever any longer. Is that not something that we long for? Was Christ dishonorable? He's the most honorable man to ever walk the face of the earth, and you'll be like him. Thank God. Uh, let's move to the sixth subpoint, F. Again, contrasting the here and now body with the body of the future. F, one is weak. The other is powerful. This is what he says in 43b. It is sown in weakness, but it will be raised in power, is how he puts it. Our present bodies are characterized by weakness. Amen? Is your current place in life, do you feel more weak than strong most days? <laughs> you know what doesn't get better as you get older? Trust me, it gets worse, right? You ever have those days where you just feel utterly weak, weakened? And, 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 and it's not always just the physical thing. It's you're emotionally damaged and weak, spiritually depleted, and sometimes physically weak, right? Bad diet and zero exercise will make you physically weak all the time. I know what that's like. Uh, but what human being could possibly be characterized by actual strength. You know, the guys in the gym pumping iron and all that, they do that because they're weak. <laughs> We're weak. 
We are weak, frail people. If we weren't weak, frail people, we wouldn't get hit with every sort and type of ailment, would we? We're minding our own business, doing life, and all of a sudden we find out there's something wrong with us. We didn't detect it. Maybe we had some symptoms, and then we say to ourselves, good Lord, I need to go down and get some testing, and then we find out that there's something very serious wrong with us. What is that the result of? Human weakness. These bodies of ours are actually borderline miraculous. The way that we are created, that we can fight off illness and bacteria and things is quite extraordinary. But even the best immune systems give way to disease at times, right? Even the strongest, quote unquote, human beings, immune-wise. I take airborne every day. I eat vegetables every day. I, you know, I, I've heard of people that I run marathons. The guy weighs a buck five. He's healthy as a horse, and then they just he dies of a heart attack. We are weak. These bodies can stave off things, but not always. I was complaining about that last week. I've managed to avoid this cold for three months. And then all of a sudden the cold was like, not today. <laughs> Jacked me up. And Rachel's like, you were moaning and groaning on band. I was like, I'll leave it up. <laughs> See what happens. See what happens. She was. She was like, you, you look like a little whiner on there. I'm like, do I? She's like, yeah. I'm like, good. So feel good. <laughs> I, I was looking for it. I was like, Let's see what I can catch today. Could count on Carla. Can't get it from this one, but I can get it from Carla. Pathetic, actually. And what is that? Let's diagnose me. That's weakness. That's weakness in me, fishing for sympathy. We are weak in every way. Whether we'll admit it or not is the difference. How many days, how many times you just woke up and you're like, man, I just do not want to go to work. You ever felt like that? I know I have. Brian's like, if Brian had forearms, they would have been going, eh. I mean, there's just times where maybe at the end of a hard day, you feel so depleted. You just get into that chair, you know, and it's like, I need you to take out the trash. And you're like, I can't. I can't. Ryan, get down here. Yeah. Always somebody in the house that feels a little better than me. We're, we're just characterized by all this weakness all the time, right? We are weak, not only in our physical strength and endurance, but in our resistance to disease and harm in these things. There's things that we stave off. There's things that we can't stave off. We, we certainly don't get hit by every ailment that comes. Our bodies do a pretty good job of fighting them off. Um, and we do have medicines and things like that. But this is, the, Paul's point is that that's not how it will be with these new resurrected bodies. They're, they're not weak. They're raised in divine power. Our souls, if we're in Christ, have already been raised in divine power. We're just awaiting these bodies to be raised in divine power, where they're no longer perishable, no longer corruptible. That's the idea here. One is powerful. I think Christ displayed this in his resurrection body, certain powers that he didn't, not saying he didn't possess them, but he certainly didn't display certain things, certain physical capabilities prior to his resurrection, did he? 
I mean, the disciples are hanging out after his post-resurrection. They're hanging out in a room, and all of a sudden he's in there. Um, and nobody opened the door. That's power. You know? And for some Christians, they're like, I can't wait to be able to walk through walls. I'm like, I just can't wait to not sin anymore. I can't wait to not have to, you know, I'll be able to negotiate a flight of 20 steps for crying out loud without going and having a new set of bruises, you know, or whatever it is. Wake up in the morning and I, I, I'm, actually, I, we won't sleep. You don't need sleep with a glorious body. It's like you've got a, an IV of Starbucks at all times, but it's divine Starbucks. Mm -hmm. You don't even need that. Why do we need caffeine? Because we're weak. Amen? Huh? Oh, I just like the taste. Shut up. You need it because that's what's keeping your eyelids open right now. Don't lie to me. We will be raised in power. That's his point. Luther said this. I think Luther was just, you know, like, um, I think I'm going to let the Pope kill me at times. Yeah, because he was chased all over creation and harassed. And, but this is, this is the way he viewed the resurrection body. He says, as, as weak as the body of believers is now, without all power and the ability and ability when it lies in the grave, just so strong will it eventually become when the time arrives, so that not a thing will be impossible for it if it has the mind for it. And it will be so light and agile that in an instant it can float here below on earth or above in heaven. <laughs> this is where they get the idea for the Marvel movies. Luther's on to something here. And, and I know what he's building on. He's building on the fact that Christ could be here or there or had abilities that we did not see displayed prior to his resurrection. And he's saying that since Christ is the resurrection prototype for us all and we will be made like him, then we will possess the same agility and ability. We're not limited by time and space any longer. Those are things are restrictive as well. I love his point. Let's move to our seventh sub point. Again, comparatively speaking, one is natural, the other is spiritual. Verse 44, this is where he really puts the hammers on the Gnostics because they believed in only spiritual and the physical is worthless. And he's saying there's both here, but one is a certain way and the other is a certain way. Verse 44, he says, it is sown a natural body. That's what we are now. It is raised a spiritual body, however. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. This is what he says. We would, I think, agree with him that our present bodies are strictly natural, right? I mean, these physical bodies, natural bodies, belong to a natural world. This is where they find their home. This is where these natural bodies function best. They were designed and created to function as natural bodies in a natural world. This is what he's saying here. Uh, in other words, the natural body is perfectly suited and limited to the natural world. Even with the imperfections and limitations caused by the fall, our present bodies are fearfully and wonderfully made, right? Psalm 139, verse 14, and therefore marvelously suited for earthly living. But this is the only realm and the only kind of living that these natural bodies are suited for is the here and now and what you're experiencing in the here and now. 
The new body of the believer, however, will be raised a spiritual body. Our spirits now reside in earthly bodies, but one day they will reside in spiritual bodies. In every way, we will then be spiritual beings, right? In both spirit and body, because we are spiritual beings right now, but it's the spirit of us dwelling inside of a perishable physical body. But in the future, that will not be the case. Our spirit, our soul will be joined with a spiritual body. And we will be absolutely 100% unequivocally perfectly suited for heavenly living. That's the goal. Right now, we are perfectly suited for natural living, to exist in a natural world. But the world to come isn't only a natural world. It is also a spiritual world of divine power. You have to be me remade with a spiritual body to be able to exist in the new world. That's the point that Paul is making. Again, shooting down the idea of the incompatibility. You have to have the physical first, and then comes the spiritual. The physical is suited for a particular world. The spiritual is suited for a particular new world. Think of it like that. Christ said you cannot even enter this new world unless you are born again. Bare minimum, you have to be spiritually alive in Christ to exist in a realm that we cannot see, but we know it exists. But that realm is coming to earth, and we will exist in it physically and spiritually. This is what he's arguing here. That's his final point there. You've got a natural body now, it's going into the grave. When it's raised, it will be spiritual. That doesn't mean that it won't have physical attributes. Of course it will. Uh, Caroline will be a fully restored, resurrected human being with a physical body. But it is also a spiritual body that is fashioned to exist in a spiritual realm, which is also physical. Wrap your mind around these things. It's complex. I can't quite understand it. It's metaphysics. It's beyond my pay grade. But it's there. And we're partakers in it now, just not in the physical sense. And we will be. All right, it's time to move to the fourth and final main point. Number four, distinctions between the progenitors. Progenitor would be one that that's the origin in which something comes or the creator of something. Distinctions between the progenitors of natural and resurrection bodies, verses 45 to 49. The last point that Paul makes and argues. Paul describes several distinctions between the progenitors of our natural bodies. We actually have a progenitor. Our natural bodies have an origin in someone. He's the progenitor of these natural bodies. And he's, he's going to describe the distinctions between the progenitor of these natural bodies and the progenitor of resurrection bodies. There's one in whom the physical natural body comes through. And there's one in whom spiritual bodies come through. This is his final point. This is what he's going to argue. The differences between these two people. Right? Verses 45 to 46. He says, thus it is written... The first man, Adam, became a living being. And then he says, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Verse 46, but it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. Stop there. Paul begins with a quotation from Genesis 2, 7, 
Uh, it's actually two seven, uh, chapter 2, verse 7b, and which says, The first man, Adam, became a living soul. So now we know he's, he's pointing back to creation. He's pointing back to Adam. He's point pointing back to how Adam, God created Adam as a person. So this is his reference. The first man, Adam, became a living soul. Adam was created with a natural body. It was not a glorified body, by the way. It was a natural body. But it was, as it says in Genesis chapter 1, good. Right? Everything that God created was good. Adam was good. The animals were good. Right? The trees were good. The plants were good. That's what Genesis says in Genesis 1. So he did not have a glorified body, Adam did not, but he had a natural body that was perfect in every way. Flawless, no disease, no potential for any of that. Until the fall, and then things changed. Adam is the progenitor and federal head of all humanity. Some speculate as to that we come from protoplasms and molecules or monkeys and fish and these other things and, and the theory of evolution is was prevailing and predominant. It's going away now, comparatively speaking, to other ideas, but some say that's the origins of man. Us Bible-believing Christians know that what Genesis presents, what God says. So Adam and Eve would be the very first parents. And the amazing thing about the Bible is that it gives, it, it gives a chronology going all the way back to them. It traces humanity all the way back to them. You still want to believe in evolution when you've got a reliable historical resource that gives a chronology and a genealogy. But it, it, I think some think it's just too far-fetched for everyone to come from, you know, two people. Well, I, I think it was in the 1800s where a Frenchman came over to America and brought over a pair of birds, a male and female type of European, European starling. Do you know what a starling is? We have them everywhere here. Those two starling, and you think to yourself, nah, there's no way we could all came from two people, really. Those two starling are about 20 billion starling now. And they're ravaging the East Coast. They destroy everything, crops and everything. All because of somebody like me, because I'm part French, came over with a baguette and a glass of wine and two birds that would breed like you can't believe, worse than rabbits, populate most of the East Coast and destroy crops and everything else. This is really what happened. Don't tell me that we all could not have come from two. Every starling on the East Coast came from two. It is possible. He is the progenitor of natural man. That is not to say that he created natural man. God did. God gave us our bodies. God created humanity. But do we not have descendants? I mean, you're sitting here. You've got parents here. We all came from parents. Those parents came from somebody. Their parents came from somebody. You go all the way down, trace out the tree. You can take it all the way back. And it can literally be drawn all the way back to two people, just like you can trace back those starlings all the way back to two ding-dong birds. Obviously, they're probably very good birds before the fall. After that, they're like, we're going to eat everything. So it is thoroughly possible 
Adam is the progenitor and federal head of all humanity. All people are his descendants. All people get their natural bodies essentially from him. Why does Caroline have a natural body? Because her descendants had natural bodies. Flesh begets flesh, John 1. Adam's natural body was the prototype for our natural bodies. We actually bear his image. Did you know that? We also bear his sinful nature. If you're wondering why you do the things you do, it's not just a matter of choice. It's a matter of your deepest inclination and part of your fallen nature. You sin not because of influences or because the village around you failed to raise you. You sin because it's in your nature to sin. You've inherited that from those two starlings in, in Eden. Adam and Eve. He's the head of all humanity. We get our natural bodies from him. We bear his image. We bear his sinful nature. That's what Paul's talking about here. The last Adam, however, became a life-giving spirit. Well, who can he be talking about here? You had a first Adam, and then now he's talking about a, a last Adam. One of them gave everyone natural forms and bodies and anatomies. The other one gives people spiritual bodies. Who could he be talking about? Christ. He's talking about Jesus. Adam is the prototype for our natural bodies. Christ is the prototype for our resurrected spiritual bodies. That's the point that Paul is arguing. Every human being... Starting with, even starting with Adam and including Christ, has begun human life in a natural body. It comes first. It is the starting point. Now upon Christ's return, humanity shall receive spiritual bodies and face, of course, judgment. Unbelievers, and, and here's the deal. Resurrection does not just apply to believers. It also applies to unbelievers. Everybody will be resurrected. Everyone who has died will be resurrected. Believers will be resurrected in Christ unto glory. Unbelievers will be resurrected by Christ to face judgment. The body of one is fitted for eternal worship. The body of the other is fitted for eternal punishment. This is what the Bible teaches. Unbelievers will be fitted for eternal punishment. On the other hand, believers will be fitted for eternal glory. So, the first Adam is the progenitor of our natural bodies. We begin with him. The last Adam, Jesus Christ, is the progenitor of our spiritual bodies. He will raise us from the dead and give us spiritual bodies. That's what Paul is arguing. Let's move to the ninth subpoint. The first Adam is from the earth. The second Adam is from heaven. This is what he argues in 47 and 48. The first man, he, now he switches from Adam to man. He says the first man, that's Adam, was from the earth. He was a man of dust. The second man, referring to Christ, is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Now he's talking about likeness. The progenitors have a progeny. People have natural bodies from Adam. People have spiritual bodies from Christ. This is what he's talking about. 
Adam, the first man from whom came the natural race, he originated on earth. In fact, he was created directly from the earth, right? God formed him out of the dust of the earth. Genesis 2, 7, verse 8, or chapter 2, verse 7a. In every way, he was earthly. But Christ called the second man, the second Adam, or the last Adam, Christ, he has produced a spiritual race. And he existed before he even came to earth. When he came to earth, he lived on earth in a natural body, but we know that he came from heaven. This is what we celebrate during Christmas. Adam, what Paul is saying, was tied to the earth. Christ, however, was tied to heaven. Because of our natural descent from Adam, we are part of those who are earthly. But because of our inheritance in Jesus Christ, if we are in fact in Christ by grace through faith, we are now part of those who are heavenly. In fact, it even says of believers, they are seated with him now in a way. In Adam we are earthly, in Christ we have become heavenly. One day our natural bodies from Adam will be changed into our heavenly bodies from Christ. This is what he's arguing here. Now let's move to our tenth and final sub-point. Believers that bear the image of Adam shall bear the image of Christ. Verse 49. He says, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Mm. Can you imagine if it just stopped with us bearing the image of the man of dust? If this life was all there is and the grave is it in the end, and you just sit there in that darkness forever and ever and ever. Hmm. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we're all born in the likeness of Adam. We have natural bodies. That's our problem. We have his sin nature. We have those natural bodies. They're perishing and all the stuff that he's described. But those who are in Christ, who trust in him, they will bear his image. That's what resurrection does. That's the point of it. To make us most like Christ. We will not only exchange Adam's natural body for Christ's spiritual body, but we will also exchange Adam's image for Christ's image. That's what he says here. We're going to bear certain images. Right now we bear the image of, of Adam and that fallenness and weakness and perishability and sinfulness, but someday it's going away and we will bear the image of Christ. Sinless perfection, glory, perfection. It's going to be amazing. We're going to bear... We're going to be, I would say, image bearers in the truest sense. Right now we are being sanctified and transformed into the image of Christ from one degree of glory to another, 2 Corinthians 3.18. It's a slow and sometimes painful process. Can I get a hallelujah? But upon his return, we'll, we shall be changed in the twinkling of an eye. Sanctification doesn't take us to the finish line. Glorification does. 1 Corinthians 15, 52. We shall be made like him and, quote, put on immortality. 1 John 3, 2. 1 Corinthians 15, 53. Think of it like this, and this is what Paul's been arguing this entire time. Our bodies, which are now perishable, dishonored, weak, totally natural, 
They will be raised into bodies that are the opposite of those things, imperishable, not dishonored, glorious, not weak, but powerful, not merely natural, but spiritual. We will have the power of Christ in which to serve and praise him. And we will have his own glory by which to manifest and magnify him. Scripture says we will radiate in blazing and magnificent glory, which the Lord will graciously share with those who are his. What does it say in, in Matthew 13, 43? Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father forever and ever and ever. That's what's coming. 